We'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Yeah, our goal today is to cover the, the account regarding Stephen, a uh, disciple of Christ, who gave his life for the cause of his Lord and King. He is the first recorded martyr of Christ uh, in God's Word. Uh, as we kind of lead up to this, this uh, particular moment in the history of God's people and of the church, I want to very quickly go over some key verses that have been in your material that you have with the question sheets. As you start in chapter 1, you know, we're told in verse 8, uh, Jesus promised the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. As you move along, you come to the second chapter, and it says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Chapter 3, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Chapter 5, every day in the temple and from house to house, They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Chapter 6, the word of God kept spreading. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great number of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And then chapter 7, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. So that kind of catches up to where we are. And as you kind of see, highlight some of the key points in these early chapters of God's inspired account of his people and of the work of the spreading of the gospel of Christ. Before we get into the text itself, I want to select a few of the questions from your question sheet. We'll go over those very quickly. For example, question three on lesson number seven. Who sold sold Joseph into Egypt? His brothers, and they're described as the patriarchs, the fathers here in uh, chapter seven. But why did they do it? Jealousy. Jealous brothers you know, you know, did that act of violence. Chapter, uh, question 7, what did Moses prophesy about the Messiah? What did Moses prophesy about the Messiah? Yes. Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like unto him, that is, like unto a Moses. Uh, question nine, you know, what, what did Moses build? Tabernacle, and how did he build it? Or what did he build that tabernacle according? A pattern. Moses followed the pattern that God gave him. And so that serves as an example to us as well. Last question that we'll just throw out, question 14. Who held the clothes of those who murdered Stephen? Saul. And so we have Saul introduced to our account in the book of Acts. And so we start here in the sixth chapter at verse 8. 
at verse 8, actually. And what we have is uh, Stephen is the main character. And as he's presented here, beginning in verse 8, we see him as this powerful contender for the faith. And it was introduced earlier. He was one of the chosen seven that were chosen to serve tables by caring for the widows in the church of Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was large. It was increasing in number greatly every day. And so there were seven men, seven Christian men, who were chosen to see to this work. And Stephen was in that number. And now we shift and we focus on what else Stephen was doing. And so he's presented as this contender or defender of the faith. Of the faith, which you notice in chapter 6, verse 7, it is the same faith that these priests are obeying. And so the faith is to be obeyed, the faith that has come to us you know, through God's plan and revelation is, is a system of faith that is to be obeyed. And so now Stephen is going to contend for that faith. But Stephen was not an apostle. You know, he is not numbered among the twelve. He's numbered among the seven in the church of Jerusalem, but he's not a, a, one of the chosen apostles. And yet we are told that he did receive power to perform miracles and signs. And you see that clearly brought out in the eighth verse. And so full of grace and power, Stephen was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And so the question is, okay, you know, where did he get this? How did he get this? Well, later on, when we get into the eighth chapter, based upon what uh, Luke pins in the eighth chapter, verse 17 and 18, that at some point, at some point, Stephen must have had the apostles' hands laid on him because we're told that that's how other Christians receive power from the Holy Spirit. Acts 6 does mention the idea of the laying on of the hands on the seven. And so you see that when the seven are presented, they've been chosen according to uh, the, the wisdom that the apostles have given the church to consider. And they're named in verse 5 in the 6th chapter. And so verse 6, these they brought before the apostles, the seven who are going to serve. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now, the question is, is, you know, what was the laying of the hands for in verse 6? Well, we're not told specifically. You know, we're not definitely told why they laid hands on them at that point. And there's a couple suggestions. One is it could have been they laid their hands on, on them for the imparting of the Holy Spirit so they may have the power to do miracles as they carried out the work of the Lord. That is one possible suggestion. Another possible reason they lay hands on is simply for the fact that you have now apostolic approval for the commission that they have been called to do. That is, you have the apostles blessing them in regard to the idea of the task that they are being set to do. Just as you would read in Acts 13, when you have leaders of the church in Antioch lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas to be sent out on the first missionary journey. So we're not told specifically why they laid their hands on them in verse 6. But in verse 8, we do know without question that uh, Stephen does have the spirit to do miracles. 
right. You know, so you go back, you look at in verse 3, you had to have men who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And so at some point, you know, that you have that explanation as well. And so every time you see the phrase laid hands on someone, it doesn't always mean the, the same thing every time. And so you've got to look at the context and see, okay, why did they lay hands on this person? And what was the reason? What was going on? But Stephen is full of the Spirit, and he is full of of wisdom and power, and he's doing a great work for the cause of Christ, and as a result of that, there is opposition. And that's really what the focus of of these chapters is, to see as the church grew in Jerusalem, as the gospel is converting Jews to Christ, you, you will have opposition to the cause of Christ. That has already been introduced earlier on when you have first the opposition that's shown toward Peter and John. And then later later on, again, you have more opposition when it's shown to all 12 of the apostles. Now we've gone outside the apostolic leadership and you have other Christians who are being opposed by those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And so we're introduced to this group of people called the synagogue of the, of the freedmen. Some versions may say the libertines. You know, you know what, what we do know, we don't know much about them, but we do know that, it was, that this, was a group of, this was a group of Jews who for some time somehow were formerly, who had formerly been slaves in some way. And, and now they have been granted liberty. They've been granted freedom. And so you've got you know, you know, this group of people that they've banded together. And we're told here in this chapter that this particular group of libertines were primarily from northern Africa and from Asia Minor. And, of course, Asia Minor is in the area we know today as modern Turkey. Uh, and so that's where they're from. And so these, this group that's opposing Stephen are outside of Judea. That kind of, kind of puts a little different tone and flavor to the opposition. So these are not, you know, this opposition that is opposing Stephen, you know, the preaching he's, he's doing, the work he's doing, are people who are from outside Jerusalem, outside of Judea. They, they're originally from northern Africa, Jews that lived there, and Jews that lived up in Asia Minor. But they were unable really to uh, refute what uh, Stephen was teaching. You see that uh, in verse 10. It says, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So, you know, they, you know, they were no match for Stephen. When it comes to his ability to proclaim the truth, defend that truth, and convict hearts with that truth, you know, they, they were no match for that. And so they're, they're unable to, to deal with that. And so what do they do? Well, they, you know, take the route that opposition to truth have done for centuries. And that is, if you can't, you know, change the, you know, and, and make the truth sound uh, like a lie, attack the messenger. And so that's what goes on here. They attack Stephen with these false accusations about blasphemy. And so in a sense, they lie. You know, they lie about the fact that, you know, he said, well, he's, he's blasphemed Moses and the law. He's blasphemed God and the temple. And all of that, you know, was simply... A deception, a lie to try to turn the tide against Stephen. 
because they could not refute what he's saying. And they succeed. And that's the, I think gonna, that's the kind of thing you need to see here in chapter 6. The success of them being able to turn the tide here against you know, an eloquent, you know, bold speaker of the gospel. And so they stir up this anger of the Jews. They don't just stir up the leadership of the Jews. They stir up the rest of the people as well. And so you see that in verse 12. He says, they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they dragged him away and brought him to the council or to the Sanhedrin. And so that sets the stage for chapter 7, where you have this great defense being made by Stephen to, to the council, the Sanhedrin. And so we have already you know, been uh, touching a little bit on that as well, you know, because that's who the apostles were brought before to try, who had to give a defense of their preaching of Jesus Christ. And so at the end of chapter 6, as he is there in front of the council, you have a, a description of him as they looked upon him there. Yeah, they're all sit, sitting in their you know, places of power. He says, they looked at and they saw his face like the face of an angel. Yeah. What does that mean? I don't know. But I think the point is, is Luke wants us to take note of the fact that something extraordinary hap- is happening right here. You know. Now, you could contrast this with, for example, in Acts 4.13, when you've got the apostle before the, the Sanhedrin, or actually Peter and John, and it says, you know, they saw the boldness and the confidence of them. They recognized that. So they realized Peter and John had been with Jesus based upon, you know, their presentation. Yeah. Well, I think that's more than, you know, that's more, you know, going on here in Acts 6 than in Acts 4. And I would suggest to you, it's not the same as Jesus being transfigured in Matthew 17. And I don't think it's the same either as what happened to Moses when he received the law from being in the presence of God and he would cover his face with a veil you know, so that people would not see the radiance of God's glory passing from him. I don't think you know, we can ma- make all those things match. But I would suggest to you that this is something extraordinary. You know, the fact that Luke makes mention of it. That his face was like the face of an angel. You know, do we know exactly what that is? I don't think so. But I think we can look to a number of passages that speaks of the radiance and the glory of angels. And so we might can be, have a little bit of uh, an explanation. But, you know, how, why, you know, you know, you'll have to ask God that when you get to heaven. But here is Stephen, this contender of the one faith, the faith in Jesus Christ, the faith that when obeyed will save souls. Here he stands before opposition, a very heightened opposition, and the kind of opposition that is more intense than it was when the apostles stood there. 
And he is ready to defend his king, his Lord. The, and so you got chapter 7, you know, perhaps in your mind as well. This is one of the most amazing sermons or defenses or expositions recorded in the scriptures. It is just profound. How he, by the power and the wisdom of the Spirit, communicates so well you know, the concise points of developing the argument and the defense of the cross and to convict hearts of that truth. You know, what you have here is basically he tells us you know, in a summary, what he, what's going on is he basically tells us how God worked through his people to accomplish his plans. And so he takes that to basically try to disprove their charge against him about blasphemy. That he, he did not and was not blaspheming against the law and Moses. And he was not blaspheming against God and the temple. And so that's one reason why he's, trying, he's giving this defense of his work as a Christian, as a disciple of the king, you know, to, to basically clarify their, you know, and expose really their lies and their deception. The other is to expose them. Dispose the wickedness of the fact that they rejected and were rejecting the Messiah, Jesus. He's right, he, he is speaking here to lay bare their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. Stephen, as he does this, I would suggest to you, has no illusions about the character of the Jewish leadership. He is not naive. He knew what they did to Jesus. It's the same group of leaders. He knew what they did to the apostles the last time you know, they met with them, threatened them, flogged them, and then finally released them. They wanted to kill him, but at that point they, they didn't kill the apostles. Stephen knows all of this. And so as he stands here before you know, the Sanhedrin and others who have dragged him. Remember how it says they dragged him. And so this is forced you know, uh, in bringing him before the council. They dragged him there. You know, this synagogue of freedmen and others who have now been stirred up with anger against him. And to present them to the Sanhedrin for them to decide what to do. In their mind, there's no good Stephen. And so he stood there before them not to appease them. He's not there to appease their consciences. But rather with boldness and with a risk to his own life and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what he does, he presents the case. And what this case is all about is he's presenting the case that... Their rejection of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. That's verse 52 of the 7th chapter. So this is kind of, when he's bringing it, he's summing it all up at the end. His case was their rejection of Jesus, the righteous one, the Messiah, was simply a repeat of a history of rejecting God and God's people, God's servants, God's messengers. 
So that's what he's doing here. You know, where he goes back in history and he presents to us God, God's faithfulness, God's compassion, God's election. And then he talks about the people that God had chosen to be his chosen people through whom he would bring the Messiah into the world and how they reacted to him and the people that he chose to lead them. So it goes back and starts with Abraham. It doesn't start with, you know, with creation. It goes and starts with, with Abraham because it's about the, the nation of Israel. You know, you know, and that, you know, the Jews have come out of you know, this ancient nation you know, of Israel that God you know, chose, that God brought into existence. So it starts with Abraham. And you basically have, I would say, three main characters. Yeah, there's a few, a few more mentioned, but the three big characters, the, the, the big points are Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. That's the three big points. You talk about point one, point two, point three. You know, those are the three main points, is those characters. Now, there's a couple other important you know, Bible faithful people and Bible characters that are inserted into this account. But those are the three main points. He's, he's, he's going to present to expose the fact that you are lying about me blaspheming. And y'all are simply doing the same thing that your fathers did throughout our history. And so he started, okay, there beginning in chapter 7, uh, starting there in, in verse 2. He says, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. When he was in Mesopotamia, and he starts to tell the story. Now, this story begins for us in the book of Genesis, Genesis eleven and, and chapter excuse me, Genesis chapter eleven and chapter twelve. And he unfolds the fact that okay, God had appeared to Abraham, and and God and God had called him out of his homeland and, and to go to a foreign country. And the point about Abraham through all of this is that Abraham listened. <laughs> Abraham obeyed God. You know, yes, our father Abraham listened to what God said and did what God said all along the way. You know, yes, he is our father. And, and Stephen uh, claims that. You know, here's Stephen, who is also a Jew. Perhaps, you know, a Hellenist Jew, but he is a Jew, and so he, he appeals to his brethren, his fathers. You know, on a national level, he is, he, he's kin to them. And he talks about the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. Abraham was as much as Stephen's father as their father. And he says, God appeared to him, God called them, and Abraham obeyed. He talks a little bit further about how God promised Abraham's descendants that they would receive the land that he's promised them. So, so did Abraham get it? Did he get the possession of the land? No, he did not. And so, now, so this is nothing new to the, the, those who read the law. Abraham lived in the land, but he, he lived a very nomadic lifestyle. He never possessed the land that God was promised to give. And he said, I'm going to give it to your descendants. You're not going to get any. 
You're, you're, you're going to be long gone when, you know, when your descendants receive this. But the point, God made a promise. God made a promise. And God's going to keep that promise. God is faithful throughout this history. It's the Israelites that are unfaithful. He's building his case. And then he talks about the covenant of circumcision and the significance of that. And so you've gone like chapters 11 and 12 of Genesis, uh, Genesis 15, and now you jump to Genesis 17. You know, and he says, okay, God established the covenant of circumcision, and it was to be a sign of what? A sign of God's faithfulness and a sign that God has chosen Israel and he was to be their God. Yeah. So that was the point of, the, of circumcision, is to show that relationship between God and His people, God and His, His choosing. And circumcision was a, a very important and vital component you know, to Judaism and to the Jews in Jesus and the Apostles' day. But he moves from Abraham then and, start, and starts talking about the fathers or the patriarchs. And what we find here is the fact uh, that uh, these fathers basically reject Joseph. And so Joseph is now going to be introduced. Now, there's a lot of there's a, uh, several years between Abraham and Joseph. You know, so, you know, God kept his promise. You know, Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. You know, Isaac had a couple of sons, one named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and they're called the 12 patriarchs, or the 12. Verse 8. And it's from those 12 fathers that you've got the 12 tribes and the 12 tribal lands that you know, are recorded to us in the following books of the Old Testament. And so it introduces basically Joseph as the one that's rejected by his brothers or by the fathers. The, fa- you know, the fathers rejected. See the kind he's right. Okay, you, you, know, you, you counsel, you Sanhedrin. You know, our fathers rejected God's Joseph. Our fathers rejected God's choice. Now they did it because of jealousy. Well, that's you know that's a. A uh, problem that mankind has uh, wrestled with throughout history. <laughs> Jealousy and envy is a sin that's committed frequently in relationships. But God, God he says in verse 9 and 10, God was with Joseph. God rescued Joseph. God granted Joseph favor and wisdom. And God made him governor. So that's the point. Now God used a number of events to bring Joseph to the point that God needed him to be, where he needed to be, at the right time he needed to be, in front of the right ruler he needed to be. God worked through all of that, but the point is God did this through Joseph. God rescued him. God blessed him with favor and wisdom and power. And then what does God's servant do? What does Joseph do? Well, Joseph now, we're told, Joseph saved. He saved those brothers and their families, the very ones 
that rejected him. The very ones that sold him. You should see some foreshadowing going on here. That God's servant that was chosen for a purpose to carry out a plan would be sold by his family, rejected by his family, but that one would have to save that family. God's Joseph saved Abraham's family. Saved the very ones that, because of jealousy, treated him unjustly, unkindly. And in in time, what Joseph does, he provides a new home. Because, as you know the history, there is great famine in the land of Canaan. And the family is not going to be able to survive. It will not last. If they stay there, they will not survive. And God needs His chosen people through whom He's going to bring a great nation out of the loins of Abraham. He needs them to survive. And so God provides the way of doing that. I really like in verse 17, just the way Luke pins this idea of God's hand through it all. What God is doing here. And so he says, as the time of the promise. Remember the promise? To Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a a nation. Through your seed, you're going to bless all nations. He said, but... you're not going to get it in your lifetime. You know. But you will have a son in your old age. But you know, a few hundred years later, after, after, you know, after you're gone, he's, you know, you know, your, your descendants are going to be, be, be slaves, but, but I'm going to deliver them. And I'm going to give them the land I promised you. And so you need to kind of have that in mind when you read these, these words, when it says, as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. That's all God at work there. God, God made a promise. God's going to keep his promise. God took care of Abraham. God took care of Isaac, Jacob. He took care of him in, in a time of great hardship. You know, and so as time was passing, at the right moment, there's going to be a ruler in Egypt that's not going to remember Joseph. And, it's, and, and the events are going to unfold so that God fulfills his promise to Abraham in a very mighty, powerful way. And so those events unfolded according to God's word. Because it was during that time you know, of hardship that then Moses, <coughs> Moses appears on the scene of Israel's history. And so you know, he starts off saying, okay, Moses was born, you know, but you know, all the baby boys are getting killed. But Moses doesn't get killed. Is it just because of the parents? No. It's not just because of the parents. It is because of God. God. God is bringing His servant upon his, into history here. Yeah. And so, you know, like so, so it says, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God. From, that, from the moment, from that moment, God had His eye on Moses. 
God had already made his choice. And so he was able to be three months with his parents. And then, then, amazingly, he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter adopts him. He grows up in in the courts of Egypt. And he becomes ultimately the the leader for God's people. But the point is, yes, God chose him. God protected him. But what did Israel do to Moses? More than once in the account here in Acts Acts 7 is basically what they do. Israel disowned Moses. Israel repudiated Moses. Initially, you know, he tries, he's trying to be a deliverer, you know, He's a young man uh, uh, and yeah, basically is in, he is around 40 years old when he runs away because Israelites rejected him. He runs to Midian and God watches over him there. And after 40 years being there as a shepherd, God calls him back and tells him, OK, you're going to go back to uh, Egypt now, and this is Exodus. This is the book of Exodus. Start in chapter 1, chapter 2, and then you get to chapter 3. God calls him, and basically from Exodus 4 onward, Moses is mightily leading Abraham's family, the descendants of Jacob, the, the Israelites out of their captivity all the way through the wilderness wanderings. It is this Moses, you know, once again, God chose him, Israel rejected him. And what, what, what are some, some pretty big things Moses did besides, you know, leading them out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and all that? Well, one, you know, the living oracles of God were given to Israel through him. It is Moses that built the tabernacle according to God's plan. And it was Moses that would say, God's going to raise up. And this is near the end of his life in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, where you have this prophecy. And so basically, you know, he lived 120. That's how old he was when he died. 120. 40 years in Egypt, 40, you know, 40 years in the wilderness, you know, you know, and then 40 years leading Israel. And so... Near the end, Moses prophesies that God's going to raise up a prophet like me. But, it, it, but then he kind of sums, sums up that idea of rejecting Moses. They rejected him you know, early on. That's when he runs to Midian. They rejected him when he, in their, in their estimation, you know, got lost on Mount Sinai. <laughs> you know, where is Moses? And they asked Aaron to build them... An idol. You know, they were rejecting Moses then. And again, they would show the attitude of their hearts. And so God, and so God sums up this time period you know, in verse 42 and 43 of, of, of uh, uh, Acts 7 by basically telling us that uh, God turned away and delivered him up to serve the host of heaven. Because you, know, you offered me these sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness, but, but was it for me, Israel? You, know, you also took along the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I also remove you beyond Babylon. Verse 42 and 43 are actually quotations from the prophet Amos. 
It's a summation of the rejection of Israel, of God, and of the law, and of Moses. Amos was a prophet from the south. He lived in Judah, sent to the north. He was a time of the divided kingdom in the, in the reign of Jeroboam II. You know, as he goes to warn them of the judgment to come. And so, here Stephen, by the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, says, okay, God chose Moses, you rejected Moses, and so therefore you turned your hearts away from God. And so God turned his heart away from you as well. And so he promised that they would go into you know, a foreign land as a captive. Beyond Damascus, beyond Babylon. And he ends with kind of in making this point to suggest to them, okay, this was God's going to do to you. And he says, and yet you have the tabernacle, which Moses built according to God's pattern. You had the temple that Solomon built. According to the pattern that's giving David. You had all of these things as part of your life, part of your culture, part of, part of your faith. And you rejected God. You actually rejected God that really doesn't live in physical structures at all. And so Stephen quotes from Isaiah chapter 66 where Heaven is God's throne. Yeah, and what, you know, what place is there that can re- be a repose for God? Paul preached similar words when he talks about how the God of heaven and earth doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And so he's gone through this history of God's choosing, God's plan, and Israel's rejection. And you get get really to his last and culminating concluding point. And that that is verses 51, 2, and 3. He says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. See, that's that's the case. He's been laying his case. From Abraham to Joseph to Moses throughout their history, what what you're doing now is the same thing they did. Yeah, you're doing what our fathers did. Verse, verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murders you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You had all of these privileges of a covenant relationship with Jehovah God. And what did you do? You rejected him. You rejected his servants. You rejected his word, his law. You rejected his worship. And so the Jews in Stephen's day were no different from the Israelites of their history. He says, you didn't keep the law, the very law that came to us, through angels. It is these words, you kind of bring chapter 7 to its conclusion, it is these words that cut their heart. 
the fact that they were, they were no better than their fathers. And so what they do is they drag him out of the city to stone him. The picture on the PowerPoint is basically he's trying to illustrate the, the walls of Jerusalem. The dark, the dark you know, bold lines uh, are supposed to represent the walls of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus Christ. And of course, the early days of the apostles. Then you've got the dotted line that extends a little farther, you know, farther, you know, more out from the right. Yeah, you know, those are walls that were built later on in the first century. So someplace in the city you know, is where, where, where Stephen stood before the council and gave this amazing, bold defense, not just for himself, but for God, and convicted their hearts with the truth, the truth that they couldn't dispute. It was their history. It was a history of rejection, disobedience, and idolatry. They could not argue that point, but they lost control when Stephen pointed the finger at them and said, you're the same. You have the same attitude, you have the same disposition, and you're showing the same character that our fathers did throughout our history. And you think, in conclusion, this very idea, when he talks, and when he basically... You know, lets them know the vision that he is granted. The idea of the vision of Jesus standing at God's right hand was proof that they killed the Son of God. Thank you very much for your attention. That is a lot of material. You know, please go back and just read chapter 7 again. Read it slowly and just absorb it. And just see the hand of God at work. He's our God still. Thank you very much.